so wait, how does this go again? I just asked the opening question. Yeah, say I'm Paul with the opening question or something, and then Adam can make it pretty later. Welcome to the Key to All the Followers, a celebration of the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. Today we are discussing the first three chapters of part one of Aristotle's On the Soul. This is a dense and difficult text where a lot of deep insights are packed into Aristotle's short arguments. Our conversation is correspondingly slow and careful, but stick with us and you'll be rewarded with a sense of Aristotle's surprisingly fresh way of looking at motion, life, and the world of the senses, which is neither materialist nor spiritual, but something of a third way that avoids the paradoxes of those two extremes. To see a reading list or to contact us, please visit our website at keytoallmythologies.com. Now, here is Paul with the opening question. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Um, I, my name is Paul. I'm going to be starting with the opening question for today. And I thought today I would just keep it real simple. We're reading um, Aristotle's De Anima, and it seems to me, or on the soul rather, excuse me, it seems to me the main issue at stake in the first three chapters of the first book is the issue of motion and its relationship to soul. So my question is simply, why is motion not enough to account for soul for Aristotle? And and per the Aristotelian method, right, he starts with what everyone else says. And and basically, as he goes through Democritus and the Plato's Timaeus and all of these other Thales and Diogenes and Heraclitus, the sort of consensus that he calls from all of these various thinkers on the soul is that the soul is chiefly motion. And so that's, that's why that it, that's why it's an, an opinion, right? A doxa that he feels like he needs to take on. I think probably the most, most salient passage we're all reading from the uh, Joe Sachs translation. I think probably the most salient passage is around 406 B 10 page 60. Um, and I didn't quite understand this. So I think maybe if we talk through that, that would be helpful. Unless there's somewhere else you guys wanted to start. I, I want to go to the first paragraph just because I feel like it's actually really elucidatory to his actual attitudes on the soul. Like I feel like Aristotle as a thinker just always spends forever getting down what other people want. So I do want to go to that, but I think it's totally fine to start at 406 P10. No, let's let's start at the beginning. Let's start with the first paragraph. All right. You want to read it, Greg? I'd be happy to. And I want to work through it pretty carefully. Since we consider knowledge to be something beautiful and honored in one sort more than another, either on account of its precision or because it is better and uh, about better and more wondrous things on both of these accounts, we should with good reason rank the inquiry about the soul among the primary studies. So first off, he identifies that something of the soul is superior and more precise. I don't remember the Greek for the precise bit, but right, that, that it's that somehow this like immensely accurate and important thing, and it's a first principle. And it seems that acquaintance with it contributes greatly towards all truth, especially toward the truth about nature, since the soul is in some way the governing source, that's RK, a single word, of living things. Uh, and we are seeking to bring to sight and to understanding the nature and thinghood of the soul. So th- that bringing to sight is interesting, right? That, that let somehow. Me, let me pause you for a yeah. second, Greg. The arche, that's interesting. I didn't know that. 
the souls in some way the arche of living things because arche is also right like archaeology it also has the connotation of founder or first thing yeah so because in the greeks beginning and rule mm -hmm. are, are they use the same word for both so if you're in charge of someone you're an archon yeah so if you're yeah but governance is always tied to beginning yeah and so this is well, well and, and I mean, yeah. go, go ahead paul well and governance right too i think more pertinently here has a connotation of like carrying through right so mm -hmm. it's like it's not simply just to begin but it's to like also be able to follow it through it, it seems like it's actually related to the uh, greek conception of freedom or like power or ability to make do etc well right yeah. the art the archon is it's like the founder slash leader right in a way the person who founds the thing also leads it Arche is also, I mean, Arche is just for another point of reference, right? In John 1, in the beginning was the word that's also Arche, Koine Greek, several centuries centuries later. It's not a beginning of a fire and forget beginning. It's a beginning of like attendance and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, tension. All right. Then, uh, and we are seeking to bring to sight and to understanding the nature and thinghood of the soul and whatever follows about it among which seem to be some attributes of the soul by itself and others that belong to the living things on account of the soul. He has a lot of kind of like duplicates in this, right? So the first duplicate is, um, is of knowledge, right? Knowledge is both beautiful and it's honorable. And then the kind of knowledge concerning souls is both precise. It's like you can speak truthfully about it and it's accurate. And it's also just better and, and, you know, amazing. And then, um, its soul is, um, is, is somehow will help us understand truth and especially truth about, you know, the way things actually naturally are. So apparently there's a distinction between truth and the way things are, tr are true of nature or something like that. Uh, and then he has this definitive stance, right? Soul is in some way well, maybe it's not that definitive, but it's definitive in the sense I feel like he's putting this down as true, is in some way the arche, the governing source of living thing. So he's already set that out beforehand. And I think that's going to weigh in a lot on Paul's question, which I think is really suitable. But I think immediately by putting it as an arche rather than as motion itself, like motion is, just, I, I think like his biggest fear is something like reductionism. Like he doesn't want to leave us with an impoverished idea of what this thing is, but he also wants it complete. Um, and so that, I think that's going to be the tension of the work where he's going to try to reach, you know, full understanding of this thing, but at the same time, avoiding any kind of impoverished attitude toward it. And it would therefore have to be a beautiful account in addition to being an accurate account. And so it seems like motion and I think we'll get there when we read that is going to feel like a very accurate account, but it's going to lack the, the beauty um, or like the intrinsic kind of attendance that soul has towards the natural world, specifically living things. And how, how should we think about this phrase, right? The nature and thinghood of the soul. So nature would be phusis, thinghood would be usia, which would traditionally be sort of in a conventional translation would be translated substance right? The nature and substance of the soul. Uh, are those two things synonyms or how are they different? Talk about the phusis and the usia of the soul. I don't know the, I'm like 
genuinely confused about this. Um, and I don't have Aristotle at my fingertips like I once did, but I don't know if you guys have any, have any thoughts on that. I think thinghood is more like, I mean, they're really close. Um, but I think thinghood is something like what underlies anything. So like there could, there could be like a thinghood of nature itself. Right. And then nature is more like the sort of way something unfolds, you know, like for Aristotle, I think it has something to do with like the teleological directionality of something. It's like the lifespan of how, of something. Yeah. I mean, we'd have to mm-hmm. get into particular instances, but sure. you know, the soul I think is a useful one to think about it. Maybe uh, a distinction that happens kind of naturally in English is like the way something is versus the what something is. And nature would be much more, this is the way soul comes to be. This is the way that it, it plays out. This is the way it appears to us. This is, this is all the ways that, that it is, whereas the Osea would be what it is as not everything else. Uh So, so broadly speaking and not, not in any sort of strict way that yeah, nature is, is a little more phenomenally focused and, thinghood is a little more ontologically focused or something. Yeah, in some ways, Usia wants a definition. I don't know if there can be, but it wants one. And nature wants a description, which is different. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe or like traits. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to push too far because, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm not a Greek, but... Uh... <laughs> so, Greg, you were, you were mentioning that and I like the distinction that there needs to be not just an accurate account, but also a beautiful one. I mean, are you just inferring that from like your sense of Aristotle in general, or is there like a particular passage that he literally says that he says one sort more than another on account of its precision or because it is better and more wondrous uh, and, and more wondrous things on both of these accounts that would be on the account that is precise and on the account that it is better. And I think accounts there is always like logos, right? We should with good reason rank the inquiry about the soul among the primary studies. So I, I mean, I, I got this a little bit from the Greek, right? So um, I think I'm gonna bet that precision is something like orthos, which is like correctness or being straight or being right. I could double check that though. I don't wanna speak out on my, uh, without knowing. There, there is a keen sense between you can like speak, you know, narrowly and precisely or you can speak in an amazing way. Um, and if you speak towards one or the other exclusively, you might miss something, right? You might speak as a sophist does if you speak with an aim solely towards wonder, or you might speak as a, in, our, in, our, in our world as a scientist does if you only speak with respect to correctness. So you're thinking of wondrous and beauty as being somewhat synonymous here? Yeah, I think he's joining them grammatically, or at least our translator is joining them. He said, because that, so the first account, right, either on account of its precision, the second one, or because it is about better and more wondrous things. And your claim, Greg, or your notion is that typically it's, we kind of have an either or sort of thing, but with the soul, like what makes the soul uniquely worthy of study is that it combines both the sense of wonder and the capacity for precise definition. Yeah. Whereas I don't know if Greeks feel that way, feel this way, but certainly with moderns, it's kind of like you either can do one or the other, but it's very hard to do both. 
especially in our connotation of soul. Is that what you mean? Like how we talk about soul? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think just generally we think, yeah, precision oh, yeah. feels cold and detached, whereas better and more wondrous feels, yeah, like enchanted or something. I don't know quite the word. Well, and I guess that's kind of why I was pushing on it a little bit is because it doesn't seem obvious to me that in the Greek, they would be so distinct. Mm -hmm. You know, it does feel like to give an accurate account of something implies a, a, a beautiful or like a compelling account, something that draws you to it, which I think is what is often meant by beautiful beauty, right? It, it's, mm -hmm. an it's an erotic experience. It, it lures you in sort of. I, I think that's right, Paul, but uh, like, I think, the there's like a long history like the the, def, the definition of a human is a two-legged wingless animal right as a as a definition it's pretty much accurate like i can definitely describe you as a wingless two-legged animal but in terms of uh and that would be completely correct but in terms of beauty it's it's a definition that doesn't evoke wonder so i think i think he i think you're totally right a good correct distinction would have to take account of wonder for it to be worthy um, and vice versa. I, like worthiness seems to certainly encounter both, but I do think they have, at least Aristotle is late enough that they would have some concern that those ideas are drifting apart. Even if we don't need, even if we don't go that far, we can at the very least say that there are these two value paradigms of value that Aristotle is talking about and the, the soul is near the top for both of them. And that makes it a somewhat unique topic of inquiry. Yeah, I mean, then the next paragraph, it kind of implies that whenever there's an issue of knowledge at all, or human wondering at all, the soul is at stake, right? It's implied in any other sort of study. Mm -hmm. He says many other studies. It's hard to imagine where soul wouldn't be invo involved, given the way that Aristotle seems to very generally define and understand soul. I mean, I guess that's one way we might want to start, right? Is like, what is, what can we say like a little bit about what he means by soul? It certainly involves motions. And I think anything with motion is going to have soul, right? This is a very broad thing, right? Like plants are going to mm -hmm. have it. Animals are going to have it, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a question about whether the soul can be <clears throat> understood or talked about apart from the body or whether it's necessarily always embodied and he doesn't i think he's leaning that direction but he doesn't land on that at least thus far and then soul so motion and then the other thing that we even talked about is sensing right so this is like uh, right before 403 b30 now that which is in soul which is is different than a soul right this is body plus soul that which is in soul seems to differ from that which is without a soul in two ways, most of all, in motion and in sensing. And these two things are just about what we have received from our predecessors concerning the soul. And he's in, in chapter three, he takes up motion, but I imagine he'll have more to say about sensing later on. And then page 57, 405B10, I'm just going to lead us through a few spots and we'll find somewhere to land. He then does another sort of circling up and he says uh, thus all thinkers so to speak define the soul by three things motion sense perception so those are the first two we saw earlier and bodiliness and each of these is traced back to the source of sources of things i'm not exactly sure how he we could talk about what he means by bodilessness it's not totally clear to me 
so there's really four things there motion sense perception bodylessness and then all three of those things are traced back to the source of things so there's some sort of primariness to soul but maybe we can think about and i well i think by bodylessness he means right people talk about soul being he doesn't exactly mean immateriality in the sort of way we use it today because he says some people say soul is fire some people say soul is water and so i i guess by bodylessness i guess you would mean that fire is bodiless in a certain sense which or air or whatever is bodiless even though it is material in another sense but i don't know do you guys have thoughts well about it, that? it can't it can't be body right because there are bodies that don't have motion that don't have sense so like a rock is not gonna have soul so I think neither does a corpse. Yeah, neither does a corpse. Yeah, any inanimate object's not going to have a soul, so it can't be reducible to have body. And the and the materialists who end up making claims like fire, fire is soul or air is soul or whatever, they end up pushing those elements into the background a little bit more and don't make them entirely like a body, right? Like I think that's mm-hmm. kind of what you were getting at, Elijah. Yeah, that's right. Well, and then and then another thing comes up too, right? And he brings up Anaxagoras, and and Anaxagoras is ambivalent about it, but he seems to to sometimes equate soul and intellect. And so, where I was left at the end of chapter two is that soul is really close to intellect, and it's really close to motion. And yeah, you're right to call out Elijah. It also involves some sort of sense perception capacity. Mm-hmm seems like we have like these four concepts that are all kind of working together and then he brings in thinking in chapter three and kind of tries to parse that out but i just thought chapter three was really complicated and and if we could get into like trying to parse out yeah how aristotle's starting to make these distinctions it might be helpful Mm -hmm. for understanding the rest of the text yeah i think that's right um and just one quick comment i mean the anaxagoras is essentially like a proto-Cartesianism, right? And Anaxagoras alone says that the intellect is not acted upon and has nothing in common with anything else. So you have a sort of mind-body dualism, an early version of it. Or, um, and then chapter three, Paul, is there somewhere you want to start us in chapter three? I actually thought the paragraph you initially wanted us to go to would be good. Okay, I can I can read it. And then if you want to comment on it, Paul, that would be great. Sure. sure. Uh, just above 406b10, page 60 in the Sachs translation. By incidental motion, so he's thinking about this problem of like whether the soul can move, how it moves, what it means to say that it moves, whether moving is the principal thing the soul does. By incidental motion, the soul could be moved even by something else, for an animal might be pushed by force. But it is necessary that something whose thinghood includes moving itself not be moved by anything else except incidentally in the same way that something good in its own right or by virtue of itself cannot be good by virtue of or for the sake of something except incidentally but one would say that the soul is moved by things that it things it perceives most of all if it is moved but surely even if the soul itself moves itself then at any rate it would be moved so that if every motion is a stepping outside itself of the thing moved insofar as it is moved, the soul would step outside its thinghood. If it moves itself not incidentally, but motion belongs to its thinghood in its own right. 
that seems to me to be the key sentence, but I'm just going to read the rest of the paragraph and then we can come back and think about that. And some people say that the soul moves the body in which it is in the same way it moves itself. For instance, Democritus, who says just about the same thing as the comic poet Philippus. For he says that Dedulus made his wooden Aphrodite move by pouring in molten silver. And Democritus speaks in a similar way in saying that the indivisible spheres while moving, since they are of such a nature as never to be at rest, drag the whole body with them and set it in motion. But we shall ask whether this same thing produces rest, but how it could produce it is difficult or even impossible to say. And generally, it seems that it is not in this way that the soul moves the animal, but rather by means of some sort of choice and thinking. Paul, do you want to start us off? I actually don't know what to say about this moment. <laughs> but I think you do. No, I mean, I, I really am puzzled about it. Um, I mean, it seems like, I mean, I, I the point, the sentence that you drew us to the one earlier on, but surely even if the soul itself moves itself, it seems like partly what he's getting at there is it can't be motion because things are moved constantly that aren't of its own volition let's say right and so it can't be simple as to say that motion is soul that's i guess like i was just left with this sneaking feeling that that can't be it right like that seems too simple and he belabors the point too much to just leave it at that and so i was just genuinely curious if you guys had like a deeper if you know if you guys thought aristotle had a deeper reason for making this distinction or if maybe that's just as simple as it is and i'm overcomplicating it no i i think it's it's really key so there's two parts of it that seem important to me the first is to me this is a lot about actually not motion but propriety like belonging to oneself because it seems like the thing he's arguing most against is not that the soul is motion but that the soul is self-moving and so that feels really crucial because it actually opens up this like whole nest of really complex problems. And the second thing I want to talk about is the problem of atomistic physics, which he brings up later. And I think that's actually like a really, really serious problem that we have to treat because Democritus's attitude that there are these things that co compose our bodies that are constantly in motion and it somehow aggregates to being at rest. I think that's a problem that if we're not like dogmatic scientism scientists about or something it would be really useful to like pause on that moment and look at it really carefully what aristotle's concern is with the atom thing but let's do the the propriety thing first if that sounds right to you let's start there and then i think the third thing after those two i just want to say it now i think the third thing we should talk about is whether perception and motion as activities are at odds with each other in some fundamental way, which is oh, yeah, actually, actually the thing that's sticking out in this paragraph to me the most, but let's that's start really with the two things that you brought up, Greg. Yeah. All right. So let's basically, he is doing a trial and error thought experiment where he says, let soul be defined as the ability to move itself. So the first issue with that is if soul is the ability to move itself, one of the huge problems is soul gets tied up in location. And as long as soul is inside of a location, there are so many issues with that, right? Because like, let's say, so your soul is there and then you get pushed over. Now your soul is over there, but the soul's 
the the being of a soul, right? It's usia, its thinghood is to not be moved around, but to be the thing that is able to, or you know, it's 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 not even the thing that's able to. It is the the self moving. So if the self movement is being moved around, that sounds like like a a crazy fallacy, and in some ways. It's like a, a, a putting motion inside of motion paradox, where if um, you know I have, I, I have a thing that moves, but it's inside of a thing that moves, right? Uh, and that's inside of a thing that moves. It gets much harder to define what motion is, especially if one of the things is capable of motion independent of everything else, like by its own nature or something spontaneous. It uh, seemed like. The conception of motion and the the problem with the soul moving itself, if the soul itself moves itself, then at any rate it would be moved so that if every motion is a stepping outside itself of the thing moved insofar as it is moved, the soul would step outside its own thinghood if it moves itself not incidentally but motion belongs to its thinghood in its own right. So I was visualizing the soul being in a location and that if it is to move, it now exists in a different location. Of course, Aristotle talks about time as like nows, a series of now moments, instances. Anyway, the soul is meant to be in the new position, but also in the position of the thing moving the thing. So I guess logically, logic is very important for Aristotle. The soul is existing in two places at once, if it is the thing that moves itself. It's mover and moved. That seems like a, a simple way to look at the contradiction well, that Aristotle might be explaining. Well, if the soul, that's good, Alex, if the soul is mover and moved, what we have to do is we have to give up its simplicity, right? We have to say it's multi multiplied, multiplicity, it has multiplicity. And I think, I, I don't know, what is the problem with that? What is the problem with saying, well, Aristotle, the soul is multiple, and that's just what it is. That's the propriety issue, then the soul doesn't belong to itself. It doesn't have being. Well, and uh -huh. it can it can change, right? Because things that have multiplicities you know, you can lose a part of yourself, mm -hmm. right? And then you're no longer the same thing, presumably. But I think he wants to say the soul is some sort of unchanging thing. So like, if we say the soul is multiple, there's part A and part B and part A moves and part B is the move that which is moved. Then really kind of what you have to say is, well, actually then just part A is really soul if by what we mean is motion. But then we're like, well, what's moving part A? And it's like, you have to subdivide it again to like A1 and A2. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it uh, seems yeah. like there's some sort of like reductio ad absurdum there that like you have to have for something to be only a mover, it has to be simple somehow. I don't know. I don't know. No, 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 that, and, that, and that's probably where I was, go where I was going at. There's like, it seems like if you, it seems like you get into that problem if you say motion is soul, right? There's the, becomes this reductio, this becomes this infinite regress because it's like, okay, well, but what did the moving? But I guess like part of my question is like, how does soul really solve that problem? You know? It's, no, that's great. There's, there are two solutions to the problem of the question, what did the moving? 
The first one is something like monism, where you just assert everything is the same, right? Or there's something this like, is like Lucretius. Yeah. Or there's something like, oh, no, not Lucretius. I feel like he's a, he's a, he's an atomistic pluralist or it's just like uh, an unlimited number of particles. Yeah, I guess you're right. Well, but I think all particles in principle, no, you're right. Cause some, for him, some particles have the, yeah. have the capacity for motion and others don't. That's right. 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 And he's got like his whole straight, I was thinking particularly like Spinoza yeah. is like a, the first concern where it's just like, there's no soul at all. It's just God. And that's a deeply satisfying answer to a number of Aristotle's predecessors. Right. Like um, they're, they're like three or four of them are just going to get off the train there and say, yep, it's just God. There's like there's no actual differentiation. The, the soul is a paradox. You just, you know, go back and find original propriety in the unity of all beings. That's one solution. The second solution is the Democritus Lucretius particleism. But I think Aristotle has a very serious problem with that. It starts with his kind of like logical refutements, but what he really wants to do, I think he doesn't think that like um, that, well, maybe he does, I don't know. But I, I, I got the sense that he doesn't feel like democratism is logically irrelevant. It's just that like democratism is such an impoverished view of life. There are now all of these things that you literally can no longer talk about that would such be not meaningful to say this, this is the foundation of soul. And so in order to keep our ability to talk about the vast majority of things that matter to us, it would be inappropriate to make either of those extreme claims. So we're going to, we, we don't want to analyze the soul with respect to like an, an infinite supermassive being, nor an infinite number of particles. And we're just going to keep like a steady level at which we can have understanding as we go about the world. And so the soul's almost like this. I think he's, it's deeper than that, but like right now it would be a logical heuristic in order to preserve this, like the sense level human like stratum of conversation will keep our souls. And can you say just a little bit more explicitly? I think that that's interesting, Greg. Uh, can you say a little bit more explicitly what you lose with the particleism account? Yeah, so this is where I wanted to go to next, but let's, so okay. let's read that the next thing. So Democritus speaks in a similar way in saying the indivisible spheres while moving, since they are such of a nature as never to be at rest. That's now a physical law, right? There is, there is no idea of zero motion, right? Mm -hmm. Because every motion is merely relative changes in position in modern physics. Um, they drag the whole body with them and set it in motion. Now, I don't know if modern physicists would say something like that because they think of motion as relative position. So this notion of all the particles moving, dragging the whole body relative, I mean, I guess it could be relative to something else, but anyways, we shall ask whether the same thing produces rest, but how it could produce is it is difficult or even possible to say, right? And so his first pointing to with the Democritus problem is a problem of scaling. How can an infinite number of things result in the word that we use to describe a singular evident thing being at rest. And, and he means this of bodies of real human bodies, right? So Aristotle is committed to our language as, or in this case, the Greek language as we use it. He says it's appropriate to describe a human being as at rest, even though obviously their heart flutters and like all he's, you know, he's not an idiot. He's aware of those like internal motions, but he seriously thinks that when you're sitting still, you're at rest. And he feels that all physicalist accounts are going to be 
lacking. They can't scale up from the atoms to you just sitting still and being at rest. And so he says that's why they're inadequate. So he's got to preserve the he's got to preserve the phenomenon. Yeah, phenomena. So basically, if I can just try to put it in layman, layman's terms a, a little bit more. So we have the problem. Where does motion come from? Democritus would say, well, dummy, everything is moving. And then it's like, well, that's fine. But then how does anything rest if everything mm-hmm. is movement? If everything is movement, that's, right. and so, that's basically it, yeah. right? And Aristotle's putting the ball in Democritus's court. Fine. Everything is moving. Describe how I can be at rest in my infinite number. Come up with the physical equation. Describe how every atom in my body can be in motion and yet I be here. And there is not a single living scientist who can do that, right? Not not the collective teams of 100,000 scientists could collect enough data to aggregate that stability that I present at every moment of my existence. And Mm -hmm. so that problem is what he's trying to shepherd soul's importance into existence from it. That in order to keep the world explainable, we're going to have like certain things that appear right now. I think, Paul, I think you have a concern about this. And I do too, that soul is something like a, a linguistic or heuristic stopgap, where it's like, at this point, we're just going to stop describing. So we're going to have this unit that it's indissolvable, it's unbodied, right? It's not analyzable into further subparts. It's simple. It's what, you know, maybe it's everlasting, maybe it's God, I don't you know, whatever, immortal. It is important because that is where our existences, our personal, like your usia, my usia stands out. And I think that's really important to Aristotle just to make the world matter. But I think he thinks of it in a more, in a stronger sense and simply a argumentative heuristic. Well, and I think that goes into that last sentence too, right? Because it seems like, it seems like the soul is directly tied up with thinking and choice and I think if like the de- the Democritus standpoint, it's hard to make room for thinking and choice, right? If everything is mm-hmm. just like constantly in flux, it seems like it's just some sort of this materialistic, deterministic thing, you know, and you're just every movement that you make is just a, an, another and a long string of movements that would have happened regardless of your own personal volition or right, a sort of determinant determinism. Yeah. Can I pick up on that and talk about perception and um, motion? So he says at the end, right, and generally it seems that it is not in this way that the soul moves the animal, but rather by means of some sort of choice in thinking. I just wanted to read that, but I'm going to go to the beginning of the paragraph. He sort of makes this argument that something can't be, can't have movement as essential to his thinghood and also be capable of being moved incidentally, right? And he makes the comparison or the analogy in the same way that something good in its own right or by virtue of itself cannot be good by virtue of or for the sake of something else except incidentally right so happiness is a good in itself so it's not it's not a good for the sake of something higher than it shipbuilding is is not a good in itself but it is a good for the sake of building ships or whatever commerce Uh, and then he does this interesting thing where he says but one would say that the soul is moved by things it perceives most of all if it is moved and I'm really curious about how he's using the word moves there, because I'm trying to think of an example of what he'd be saying here, but it seems to be something like I might the soul right through my eyes sees a delicious piece of fruit or a beautiful body. And then I, and then I move towards that thing. Right. It's exactly mon- monkey see monkey do. <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's like the most basic thing. We see something we're attracted to it. 
right? So it's like the soul. I mean, there's this is actually like a really deep observation, and it's actually really relevant to talk about today. Of like, does movement originate spontaneously from my soul, or is it really something like a filter that that takes in the the sensory world, translates that into action? And those are two different things. And so to say that the soul, at the very least, I think Aristotle is rightly saying that to say that the soul is perceives which leads directly to motion and then is self-moving is in very deep tension if not an outright contradiction well wait i mean say more because i think that's precisely what he means by soul is it's precisely to be able to be receptive to the world and thus to be moved by it but not not but not like it's because it's not pure spontaneity right like i think we think of like we think of our own freedom as pure spontaneity like in some way apart from the world but i think that is very different from how aristotle wants to think of it no I, I think we agree paul i think what i was trying to say is that he says these two attributes these two qualities are attributed to the attributed to the soul one is this spontaneous movement apart from the sensory world and that's the self motion that all the thinkers attribute to it and then there's this other thing where the world comes in and then my soul takes that and then translates that into some sort of action, right? So that's, and he wants to say the soul can do one of those two, but it can't do both. And I think Aristotle favors the latter, where the soul is mainly perceiving. And then that perception in some way, does the soul take in the stimuli from the external world, the phenomena in a determined way so that we must act? Or is it that the soul perceives and is moved by a fruit or whatever, but there's still choice in thinking involved, right? But my choice in thinking starts with perceiving the world in some way. I think Aristotle thinks that's what the soul mainly does, at least this far. That's my prediction. We're not there yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, I just, I think that that first notion you set up of like pure spontaneity, that I don't think that exists. I think that's just like a fantasy. Yeah, when I think that's the reductio ad absurdum that Aristotle's doing. I think, I think that's the position he's attributing to the earlier thinkers. And I think that he's against it. Yeah, that could be. So choice and thinking and perception, those are sort of related to the intellect category. I'm trying to remember the other two categories after motion. I was thinking about the word choice and wondering like if that's the pro irisis, a Greek word and remembering all the way back to Hannah Arendt and her great elucidation of, of Aristotelian discussions of pro as a precursor to the concept of will. To me, that's helpful in thinking about Aristotle's problem of the soul. The way the soul works, I guess, can't be simply motion because there are these other ideas that seem bound up within the concept of soul such as choice or will and perception and thinking we have a lot of work to do to draw to draw the adequate boundary for for the thinghood of soul i i think that's right alex the one thing i I try to be careful with is i feel like prohiatis is like something much more akin to I don't, you know, this is my judgment. So take it with salt, a grain of salt, but like it's choice, not in the sense of like free choice, but just like 
or like what we think of as freedom, but just like literally the differentiation that comes with having acted in one way or another. As, as far as I'm reading it, the problems of the soul are much more currently about something like differentiation than something that like we moderns would be like looking for something like freedom in, right? So, um, or, or yeah, yeah, you know, because uh, every one of these problems is related deeply to differentiation, right? Motion is how I become separate from the world around me perception is how I locate myself as apart from the world around me. And uh, bodilessness is how I determine myself within myself. I want to say at first, we're only in the ground of, of, of how something is not the same thing as everything else mm-hmm. before, before we go to something like how is, how is something I mean, just say it is wondrous and beautiful. So I don't want to go down too far the road because that, that would be just like mathematical differentiation if it wasn't also wondrous and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, you know, lesser beings will have souls. And that means that soul is not intrinsically excellent or, or towards freedom in the same way as, or is, is, yeah, I, I expect an undemocratic undem- treatment of soul. Let's put it that way. Uh, can I take us to a passage to pick up on what I was talking about a couple minutes ago? And, and maybe you can see if this sort of how this fits with what you're thinking about right now, Greg. So this is page 53, 404A20. This is where Aristotle sort of summing up how all these other people are talking about soul. He says about two sentences in the or second sentence in that paragraph starting on page 53. And it comes to the same thing with all those who say that the soul is what moves itself. For they all seem to assume that motion is the thing that is most proper to the soul. And that while all other things are moved by the soul, this is moved by itself. Because they do not see anything cause motion, which is not itself in motion. And I kind of what I was, I'm trying to formulate it, and this was a very hard chapter, but I think, I think that that account is sort of implicitly, because he also says, right? The soul perceives and what the soul perceives moves it, right? And if the soul is moved by what it perceives, then it is not true that the soul moves itself. You would actually say something like the soul mainly perceives, right? And it incidentally moves because of its primary activity of perception, right? Which is very different than saying the soul is the thing that originates all movement, right? So in a certain sense, I guess I'm trying to think about the account of I see some beautiful grapes and I get up and walk across the the room to get them in a certain sense right a thing that is not in motion grapes has begun motion (laughs) through the mediator of the soul and i think aristotle wants to say that that is what the soul does cause motion but not primarily rather incidentally and i'm predicting where he's going to go say this explicitly but uh, and he primarily it perceives and then incidentally it moves at least I'm not sure I'm right, but to at least clarify my thinking, Paul or, or anybody. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really crucial because it's like, because I mean, that's the animistic account, right? Like you see a pretty thing. The light molecules of the pretty thing strike the photoreceptors in your eye sending an impulse mm-hmm. signal to the brain, which releases the hormone that causes the leg muscles to contract, all that stuff, right? It's like an entire mechanism. Every single step is turned out. And he, I think, I think you're right. There's something about keeping the soul 
towards perception away from motion that opens up something like what we encounter of our soul and, and this is right. what and, well, and, it's, and, yeah. and it only makes sense to talk about soul in the context of world in a certain sense right if this is true if, if it's primarily perceiving then it then you can't really talk about it in the abstract i mean yeah. i feel like I'm going to be, I want to be careful about sort of importing, you know, Maurice Merleau-Ponty at all into this book too hard, but he does seem to be giving a sort of an account that anticipates the phenomenology of the 20th century, I think. And, I think well, I when, and so the too. phenomenology of the 20th century comes from going back to Aristotle and reading it very closely. So I don't think you're wrong to make that connection at all. But yeah, I think the the crucial thing is and this is why I keep wanting to go back to propriety. You could literally try to start that description, but that that doesn't matter when there's something like what you do, right? Like you don't you don't feel that account at all, um, or like your own differentiation from the grapes, right? Like in that sense, there's this perfect unity between the grapes and you during the entire set of motions involving you picking up the grape, right? Like from the third party thing that you, you, you know you are effectively the grapes there whereas in your account right you find a desperate division between thyself and the grapes and that compel that compels thee uh, and you rise and you go grab them and i think that's why perception adds like like cuts up motion is not just that yeah it's not just that you can't explain perception from motion but literally that um, in perception, I'm doing something very different than movement, even if ultimately it can result in movement. Incidentally, incidental, incidental movement. Yeah. <laughs> but there's still in the, in the scenario where I'm looking at the grapes, there still wouldn't be movement without soul. It's just not self-originating movement. It's not self-movement. It is uh, a movement that is initiated by an act of perception. Mm-hmm. and then the yeah. question i have and then you can go paul the question i have is then well i'm sort of assuming that thinking and choice have to do with that perception as well we're assuming it's not a deterministic thing what were you going to say paul yeah i mean i guess i i i, I see what you're saying i think it, it just seems like you have this notion of self-movement that's like movement ex nihilo like move like mm-hmm. being self-moved from out of nowhere I just don't, that seems like such a foreign idea to Aristotle. And I mean, he does any, I just want to point out, he says, mostly moved by what you perceive, you perceive you're moved by things. Mm -hmm. It perceives most of all. So I think he's leaving room for, I mean, he's got to be leaving room for like the possibility that you aren't moved by what you perceive and you can move away from what you perceive, Mm -hmm. for instance. And the, and, you know, I think like getting into like the ethical stuff, it is precisely ethical some of the times to not to, to, to avoid what you desire or what you perceive in that moment. But I still think that there's something like very worlded about that, right? Like it's, it's not yeah. something that's just, it's not a self movement out of nowhere. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm just trying to clarify. Yeah, yeah. Even if you stare at the grapes and you don't move, right. You're precisely not right. moving towards the grapes. Like in your own, you can't, in soul, you can't banish the grapes, right? Like, because he says the thing about Homer in some ways pretty much got it right when he says the soul is the intellect itself, right? Like when, you, when you're looking at the grapes, they're there. You're not going to get them out of your soul. 
even if you don't move, even if you run away from the grapes, if you do anything and the grapes are affecting your soul, the grapes are there in your soul. And so if, if soul is the movement, then soul is always outside of itself in a way that it, it almost loses its whole different, it's, you know, just falls apart. Mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying, Paul. And I think that that is a good thing to be aware of. And I'll, I'll just to clarify a little bit, what I'm wondering about is the, he makes a distinction and this is this paragraph we've been camping on, on page 60 by incidental motion, the soul could be moved even by something else for an animal might be pushed by force. Right. So like if I walk up to grave Greg and I give him a bear hug and walk him over to the kitchen, that's incidental movement of the soul that is the ensouled being. Right. But it is necessary that something whose thinghood includes moving itself, not be moved by anything else except incidentally. So it seems like he's setting up a binary here, right? Where there's two ways you can be moved. You can move yourself or you can be moved by something else. And then he makes the claim, which is very bizarre to me. The soul is moved by what it perceives because he's almost using moved there in the metaphorical way that we use it, right? That movie moved me to give money to that charity or whatever, right? That documentary moved me to sign that petition. And so He's, he's making some sort of binary there about two different ways of moving. And I take what you're saying about the moving itself feeling abstract, but I don't know how, how else to un- understand that other side of the binary at well, this it, point. And in I might what later. way is, is, is that thing you said a metaphor? Like if, if the moving moves you, and how is that a metaphorical statement? I feel like that has uh-huh. to be a completely literal statement. Well, if, what if I say Paul's impassioned speech caused me to change my mind about or moved me to change my mind about politics right i'm not physically moving but there's move the movement it's not i guess it's not necessarily metaphorical but it's non-literal movement there is literal movement though what if it's just literally i mean your your soul is being moved i mean that's yeah yeah. but i'm not moving in the sense of walking across the room i guess is all i'm getting at yeah no it's not it's not it's not simply spatial movement Right. No, I think this is really good, right? Like, I think, I think it's our default to think of movement as being purely spatial, but there is something. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was thinking about it metaphorically too, but I think you're right, Greg. It's not, it's not really metaphorical. It is like your your soul is being like impressed upon in a different way to to be itself, to become something else, to change itself in some sense. Right. So well, I think that's and- really. Yeah, I think he's he brings that up with the problem of appearances, right? The appearances move, right? If I press my eyeball, there will be green movement on my, you know, frame of visual reference. And so he's aware of that. And so I think the movement of the soul is an activity that he sees as constantly going. So even if you stand still during a speech, your soul would have to be in constant motion. As long as you think about motion as any kind of engagement. And he's got the four, def- you know, the four types of motion, right? Alteration is one of the types of motion. Translocation is only one of the types of motion. So as long as we remember, const- I was saying, Elijah, the four modes of movement are pretty key here, right? So you've got uh, translocation, alteration, growth, one? growth and decay, growth and decay, right? And so your soul does not translocate, or if it does, I don't understand how it does that yet. But um, if you're like listening to a speech, it 100% is being altered, right? Or, or, or like, you know, you press your eyeball, you see green, right? That is an alterate, the seeing green now where, where previously 
there wasn't. That's an alteration of the state of the soul. That's right. And in terms of translocation, I mean, right, I'm an ensouled, I'm an ensouled creature. When I get up and walk across the room, isn't my soul moving in some sense? Yeah, so that's the part I don't understand yet. So that's got to be true that your soul goes with you, or it'd be really weird. But but this is where I think the bodylessness is going to come in very importantly. It it will feel very well, weird. Oh, go ahead. Well, but I, I just want to be cautious. I don't think, I mean, it's not clear to me that Aristotle has said that the soul is bodiless, only that, well, two things. That's something he attributes to the other thinkers. And then it's a question about, if we talk about bodiless souls, we are talking about, that is a theoretical move we make for discussion's sake, but there's never a soul without a body in the actual, you'd never encounter a soul without a body in the actual world. Yeah. So, right? so yeah, I think that's important, but like we can sort of talk about what would it mean apart from the body for there to be soul. That's a theoretical construct, but it's not, I don't think for Aristotle, it's something that you would actually encounter. Right. And I don't I, think he believes in ghosts or like, you know, like Dickens totally, sort of I ghosts totally or whatever. Agree. I'm not comfortable saying though that soul has a location yet though. I don't, I think the inverse of that is not demonstrated. Um, and I still don't know if we know if soul is subject to alteration, but it, but, but I think we're, we're like rooting up these problems. Mm-hmm. So if you say souls occupy locations in space, then the self moving definition is necessarily as Alex pointed out, a contradiction because it's a self movement away from itself, which would, was, it would be destruction, right? If the being of a soul is to be a movement along a space, then it's a soul is always literally encountering its opposite and therefore it's destroying itself. Mm. So that's like a logical refutation of definition of the soul. If, um, if a soul has a, a location, but I'm not sure it does yet, but I agree. It can't be, it can't be with without body, but I think it might be able to be without body without, being in in a place and up to this point because if the, it turns out that the soul does it either is moved or moves if it turns out the soul is moved or moves then we would have to say that the soul changes right because movement is a sort of change it's a sort of alteration yeah. growth or decay or translocation and aristotle has not yet at this point he has not said that it is not moved or that it does not move only I take chapter three only to have said that its primary characteristic is not movement. And if we think that it's essentially movement and perception, those two activities contradict each other, like saying something is for the sake of, and that it's a good in itself. Yeah, I agree. That, that's where I'm at. But what, what do we need to add or think about? I feel like we've, we've actually done a pretty good job of at least unpacking the problems. No, I, I feel like we're not, misunderstanding anything crucial yet but i i think the the uh, the real problem i always have with aristotle is that it's very easy to turn it into like a simplistic ideology where it's like you clean up the problems and then you're left with a, a very unsatisfying conclusion and so the thing that i want to like keep ahead of or something is, is like properly when we, every time we think about the soul it ought to be marvelous any knowledge regarding the soul ought to be truly marvelous. And the, the litmus test for that is something, well, I mean, is obviously the experience of wonder, but, but that when I think about my soul as being distinct from the world around me, 
I can I can then encounter that awe. Or, you know, and I think the, the perception movement thing is really about bringing forward that awe. Because the problem with the ancient or the ancient thinkers is they come up with an account, right? And this is like a key part of like what Logos means, right? I can come up with a way of talking that will satisfy me. Like even the really dumb ones, the ones like, well, who's he say, hippo, or the really dumb ones can still get it down such they can go around the world and their, their account of soul creates very few problems for them, but it's not knowledge, right? It's just, it's just an account that'll get them from A to B for their whole duration of their lives. But, but, but what Aristotle really wants to do for us is to, and this is where I think the perception thing is actually really, really key. There ought to be logical or maybe practical consequences, the definition of soul, but we're really bringing to our perception, right? to our sight and to our understanding, something amazing. And that is the telos of what we're doing, not something like we need to clear up this definition because the definition is wrong. We're, we have no interest in fixing errors. We're like, we want to bring to our sight what is amazing. Well, and one of the things that makes it wonderful is that it is, we can talk about it precisely. Right. Right. That's, that's the point of that first sentence that you were sort of um, drawing our attention to. Right. But the precision's not the point in itself strictly. Like it's it's part of it, but it's 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 at the it's it's it's, it's, it's like what we're not doing is is logic in the modern sense. We're, we're not correcting an error because somebody mm. hippo was a dumbass. Right. Like that is not what we're doing. There. Like we really have to be seeing any like we have to bring it to our site whatever this Uh thing the soul is well i I wrote that paper for mr hand at st john's and i labored over it and he didn't like love it but i thought it was good but um it was in the philosophy segment but it really struck me reading reading that you know reading aristotle's metaphysics and then going to descartes and hume that really like fear really dominates once you get to modern philosophy, right? Descartes is afraid of like, what if I'm being deceived? And that's the impetus for his project. And and Hume is doing something similar, right? What if, I mean, there's a lot of like fear and anxiety that's driving their epistemological projects. And it's just so strikingly different from Aristotle's, you know, all men by nature are are prone to wonder. Thomason is at the heart of Greek philosophy. And I do think I do think if your disposition is one of fear of being deceived, you approach the project in a different way than if your project is to partake and behold wonder. That's my whole point, I guess. Yeah, it's astonishing <laughs> too for such a pessimistic culture. The wisdom of um, oh, it's just the guy who's like, it's better to be dead than alive, or no, better to be never born than born. But if you are born, it's better to be dead. Okay, Aristotle even at one point I think says that statement is literally correct. But but still somehow the the wonder thing permeates. Yeah, I think that's great. Thank you for joining us in the Quixotic Quest for the Key to All Mythologies. Next week we'll be finishing book one of On the Soul. Is that right? Does that sound good? All right. Uh, thank you and good night. Night. Good night. It's good to be talking philosophy again. It's a different sort of conversation. It's a little. I feel a little rusty myself. I had fun. I thought it was great.